Good morning. It's good to see you. And I hope that you are uh, eager to look to God's word together as a church. It is one of the greatest kindnesses of the Lord that he has told us to gather like this every week. And he has told us to look to his word every week. We need it desperately. But let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help that he would be with us in this time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need as we always do. We know that as we just considered it, it is good that we meet weekly like this. We know that it's good to look to your word. And at times, if we're honest, because of our sin, we don't feel about these things the way that we should. So God, we pray that you would come by your spirit and overcome our sin. That you would overcome our distractions and our burdens. We pray that you would work in us because we know that only you can work in us in a way that will produce lasting and meaningful change. Only you are the one who can give life to us. We pray that you would come and impart life and faith today as we look to your word. We want to be stirred up to love you and love others. We want to be stirred up to good works. We pray that you would do that in us now. Use your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a question for you this morning. What kind of church do you want to be in? What kind of church do you want to be in? Let's talk and think together for just a moment as we're making our way back to, to 1 John. When I ask you that question about what kind of church you want to be in, what kind of church you want to be a part of, I'm not talking about things like at the level of preference like musical style or the decor of the room or anything like that, even the times that the services are offered, etc. I'm asking more about high-level stuff. I'm asking certainly about doctrine, but even for our time right now, what kind of church do you want to be in with respect to how people live together? How do we live together is a wonderful question that we would consider it's an important question for every church to think about. I would offer one of two scenarios that are very common in the American church. Scenario one, it's a kind of church where there is a kind of general looseness that kind of permeates everything that goes on in the life of the body. Now, there may be some churches under this kind of generally loose category that might be like straight up lawless, right? what we might call antinomian. Where it's just kind of like, yeah, it doesn't matter at all what you do. I think that that kind of antinomianism proper is more rare, in, even in the States right now. What's very common, though, is a church that is, as I've already said, kind of generally loose in its practice. Generally loose in terms of how the church, the people live together. There's not a lot of oversight, maybe. Their relationships are kind of shallow, generally. Like, don't talk much. Uh, deep stuff. It's all kind of surface level. It's a situation where you can kind of slip in and slip out pretty easily. You can live in sin, frankly, and nobody's ever really, even if it's thought to be wrong, like sin is sin, it's just not really talked about. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. And you just kind of slip in, slip out, do your thing, and it's pretty comfortable. So that's one scenario. There's another scenario, though, that makes the opposite error. And it's the error of what might be called legalism and moralism. 
Now that kind of church, there's going to be all kinds of outward conformity. People will toe the line. It'll look good. But that kind of a culture destroys like authentic living in the light together. It's a dangerous place for a different reason. The first scenario is dangerous because people are comfortable in their sin. The second scenario is dangerous because the church in that case is the last place that you would ever go to talk real about your sin. In that second scenario of legalism and moralism, there's no compassion. It's kind of like, my goodness, if I say something about this, I'm just going to get trampled. So I'd rather not. Thank you. There's not a biblical understanding of sin either in that scenario. Because the thoughts of sin in that case are almost purely reduced to just action. Thought. It doesn't permeate every level of the sinner in that kind of understanding. There is, friends a better way than either of those two scenarios that I've painted. There is a third way, if you want to call it that, that's better. So let's go to the Bible. Let's go to the Bible and think about that, specifically from the letter of 1 John this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to the book of 1 John. Again, we're almost at the very end of what's called the New Testament. So you're almost at the very back of the Bible. The only books after 1 John are Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John. We are in chapter 1 of this wonderful letter. Uh, I preached the first of 14 sermons last Sunday. If you're here today and you did not hear that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on the website. It's also on the podcast. It's pretty foundational in terms of how we're going to seek to understand this letter together. So I leave that to you. I want to read our text for this morning. We're going to be considering specifically verses 5 through 7 of 1 John chapter 1. And then I'll lay out the plan for the rest of our time. This is the word of God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I've got several headings to kind of give us some handles for our time left together today. I'm going to give you those headings one at a time as we go. I'll try to make them very clear. So heading number one. I want to revisit briefly the situation and the context of 1 John. I want to revisit briefly the situation and the context of 1 John. So I did this at more length last week, so I'll leave all of those comments to you, but I want to reiterate a few things. Remember that John is writing to a church that is being bombarded by both false teaching and apostasy. False teaching in a couple of forms that we're going to consider. Apostasy meaning people who are leaving the church, people who are abandoning the faith, and they're out. The false teaching that exists is a couple of different streams. Like we considered last week, one of them could be referred to as almost a proto-Gnosticism, an early form of Gnostic thought from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. This false teaching would have been essentially a synthesis of Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine. It would have had a very kind of 
Platonist or a Platonic feel for any of those familiar with the philosophy of Plato, where there are two different streams, essentially, two different planes in the universe. There's a spiritual plane, and then there's a physical plane. Everything exists kind of on one of those two levels. The spiritual plane is inherently good. The physical plane is inherently wicked. That's some of the thinking that was involved in this kind of false teaching. There's an emphasis on knowledge and enlightenment in this kind of mystical way. Right? Sort of an inner knowledge, right, was what the pursuit of these individuals would have been. In fact, that's how redemption would have been understood. It would have been understood as some kind of inner sense of enlightenment. Remember, too, some of the basic framework of this false teaching. There's one true God, capital G, God, and he is spiritual and has no direct dealings with anything physical. This is, again, under this false teaching system of proto-Gnostic thought. There would have been other gods underneath the God, referred to, again, as demiurges, to use the technical term, and those little g-gods would have had dealings with physical things. They were less than the God, right? He doesn't deal with the physical. The sort of underlings do. One of these little g-gods, one of these demiurges, was referred to often as the God of creation. And that is what we would understand from Scripture. They would say the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, is that God of creation. We're going to think about what the truth is in a minute. But that's the false teaching. The God of creation is the God of the Old Testament. And then there's another little g God, the God of redemption, namely Jesus, who comes to free people from bodily captivity. That's the goal. The pursuit of life is inner enlightenment, to be set free from bodily captivity so that your spirit can then go off and exist in a kind of spiritual state of bliss and heaven in one sense forever. There was another stream of false teaching, though, that was going on at the time that would be referred to under the heading of docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to seem. I'm just going to outline that briefly for you. I know this is heavy theology. Track with me, right? The emphasis here in docetism, in docetic thought, is that Jesus only seemed to be physical. He only appeared to be bodily, right, in form. In other words, he was not really fully human. The thinking is that he's divine, right? So he's spiritual. And then there's no way. How could he be associated with something so low, so carnal as a human body, right? A human physical nature. He's God, right? Two big problems with this false teaching. Big problem number one is that both that proto-Gnostic thought and docetic thought deny Christ's true humanity. That's a problem for us, like redemptively. We talked about this a little bit longer last week. I'm just going to touch on it. If Jesus is not truly human, yes, he's truly God, but if he is not also truly human, he is not our representative before God. He is not the only mediator between God and man. In other words, if Jesus is not truly human, he did not fulfill God's law in our place. He did not die our death under the law. That still needs to be done, right? He did not bear the wrath of God for our sin. That still needs to be born. He did not rise from the dead bodily. And so therefore, he is not our bodily resurrection in any way. 
If Jesus is not truly human, basically, friends, he's not our redeemer. He did not redeem what he did not take on in terms of a human nature. Does that make sense? He takes on an entire human nature in order to redeem the entire human nature. Material and immaterial part of us. If Jesus isn't truly human, we are still dead in our sins because he is not our savior. It's a big deal. The second problem that arises from this false teaching, proto-gnostic thought and docetic thought, is that there was an obsession and an emphasis of the spiritual over the physical in such a way that what was done in the body, in the flesh, was seen to be meaningless. Life in the body is basically meaningless. All that really matters is what's going on at a spiritual level, right? The spiritual realm and the spiritual plane is the only thing that's worth anything. Sins committed, therefore, in the body were of no consequence. It was just, because you understand this, right? It was just the lower nature. It was just the carnal part of a person that was committing sins in the body. And since what goes on in that carnal nature, that lower nature is insignificant, the only thing that was concerned or was considered, excuse me, was that spiritual piece of a person. So in other words, friends, you can see where this goes. It leads to blatant and outright unapologetic antinomianism. It leads to a kind of living where it really does not matter what you do. If what you do in the body doesn't matter, then do what you want, right? That's the thinking. There was a real indifference about living a God-honoring life in the body. Because you could do that on a spiritual level regardless of what you were doing physically. There would have been, therefore, no real concern for sin in any meaningful way. There would have been no sense of like a real, genuine battle with sin. Because all you need to do is be enlightened, find that kind of inner knowledge, and you'll realize that there's no real battle to fight against carnal sin because it doesn't matter. And once you come to see that light, then you will be set free from having to worry about those things. There would not have been, in this kind of thinking, a real acknowledgement of real sin, right? It would have been dismissive in its posture. One could say, again, thinking about sins committed on earth in the body, a person could genuinely say under this kind of false premise that I have no sin, right? I have no sin. The real me, the inner me, the spiritual me has no sin. It's just the body part of me, the carnal lower part of my nature that's sinning. But nobody cares about that. That matters, right, for how we approach this letter. The other big thing that I have mentioned that this church is being bombarded by is not only the false teaching, but also this issue of apostasy, meaning there were people leaving the church, people abandoning John's readers. So these individuals who were abandoning John's audience had certainly bought into the false teaching that I've just described. They did not have sound doctrine. These apostates were seeking to deceive John's readers, he writes. They were not certainly loving the brothers. They were not practicing righteousness. 
They were not keeping God's commandments. They were not walking in the light. They were not calling their sin what it was. They were not confessing their sin because, again, they didn't understand themselves to have any. At least any sin that mattered. They didn't have God's spirit, John tells us, because they didn't confess Jesus came in the flesh. So all of this is very important for us, friends, to remember what John is writing into. Right? To understand the situation of a letter that was written in history, it matters very much for our understanding. So I want to move us forward now into our text proper for today, verses 5 through 7. The next heading I want us to consider together is just a, a statement of truth that John writes for us in verse 5. The heading goes like this, God is light. No shock to anyone, God is light. Put your eyes on verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, meaning that's, this is the message we've heard from the Lord. right? This is the message that we have heard in a general sense from the teaching of Christ and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. This is what we've heard and this is what we proclaim. That God is pure. That God is holy. That God is just and good and altogether righteous. That's what God being light would mean. There's a lot more that we could say. There is no darkness, no wickedness, no sin in him at all. So two things here, friends, for our observation. This statement that John makes about God, first of all, is in direct refutation of the false teaching that existed in terms of how they thought about God, right? Hear me out. The false teachers in this context of this letter were talking about the God of the Old Testament as though he was some kind of malevolent deity, as though he was some kind of wicked God who made physical things and imprisoned everybody in a body. Far from that, John is saying, no, 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 there is no wickedness in God at all. He is completely pure. He is completely upright. He is light, not darkness. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is the God of the whole world, and he is the God of creation, and in creating, everything he has done is upright. He is upright and never sins, as the psalmist says. He is the father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift, and in him there is no shadow or variation due to change, as James writes. He is the one from whom angels hide their faces, right? Talk about holiness and purity and righteousness. Angels hide their faces and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. He is the one of whom we rightly sing, we did today, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. We, we don't see him as he is now because of our sin. He's too pure for us to look on in our fallen state and survive it, frankly. One day that will be remedied. We will see him as he is. And it will be a great thing. He is the one of whom we rightly sing. Though the eye of sinful man, thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy. There is none beside thee. Perfect in power, in love and purity. This is God. He is light. The 
second thing to observe about John's statement that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all would be that the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has no fellowship with darkness. He has no fellowship with darkness because he is light. He has no darkness in him whatsoever. And because he is light, he is opposed to darkness. Because he is purely good, he is opposed to evil. Think about John's words from his gospel where he talks about the Word, God the Son. He writes of, of him and says this. In him, talking about Christ, right? God the Son made flesh. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, right? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Those are words about God the Son. But then staying in John's gospel, think with me about a very famous passage and thinking about this tension, this juxtaposition of light and darkness. For God so loved the world, people know this verse, right? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Praise be to God. That's true. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's the judgment. That's the reality of the situation. God is light. He is pure and holy. He is completely good. And the greatest revelation of God is Jesus Christ. The greatest revelation of God is God the Son taking on flesh and dwelling on earth. And when that happened, the true light came into the world, and here is the judgment. People don't like Jesus. People naturally in their sin do not like Christ. Why? Because he exposes us for who we are. We understand ourselves rightly. We behold him we see the pinnacle of God's revelation and we don't like that because I want to do what I want to do. I want to do me. I want to go my own way and Christ will not allow me to be comfortable in doing that. We don't like it. Verse six, back to our text today. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Literally, we do not do the truth. So this makes sense, right? This is perfectly reasonable and logical in light of everything that has been revealed, everything that we're considering today. If we say that we have fellowship with God, who is light, 
while we walk or live in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. This is because God has no fellowship with darkness. Verse 7. Let's keep just looking at the text. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How many people grew up in the church here? Any DC Talk fans in the room? Want to be in the light as he is in the light? Come on now. But if we walk, if we live in the light as God is in the light, we're told a couple of things. We have fellowship with one another. And so when you, hear, when you see that, we have fellowship with one another. Look back up to verse 3 to think about what that means. Right? The apostles are saying, John is saying, we've revealed all this stuff to you that we've seen and we've heard, we've proclaimed it, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Right? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So when we see, down in verse 7, we have fellowship with one another, certainly that means one another in the church. But that fellowship ultimately is with the saints have gone before, it's with the apostolic witness, and it ultimately is with God the Father, God the Son. That's what fellowship means here. So if we walk in the light, if we live in the light as God is in the light, we will have that kind of fellowship. And we see that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. All right, so next heading. I hope that you're, you're looking at this and, and you're seeing it and you're thinking well about it. Let's think about it together. Next heading is a question. A question. I've got two questions coming for you. This is the first. What does it mean to walk in darkness? What does it mean to walk in darkness? We're going to consider in a minute what it means to walk in light, in the light. But first, let's talk about this. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Biblically speaking, and even in the context of 1 John, things we've been considering already. First thing that we could say about walking in darkness would be that there is no acknowledgement of sin. But instead, there is a denial of sin. This is the kind of posture where it's like, what I'm doing is not sin. That's one way this looks. How many times have you heard people argue this, even in the church? It's something that the Bible says is sin, but I'm not going to call it that. It's okay. No. Not okay. You don't determine those things. I don't determine those things. It's above our pay grade, man. Right? So what God has revealed and has said, this is wrong, this is sin, we call sin. We don't deny it that way. There's another way this looks, though. Some people will just argue, what I'm doing is not sin. They're not going to call it what the Bible calls it. But there's something else that's perhaps even more terrifying, and that's what might be called an indifference about sin, an indifference towards sin. This is the kind of posture that says, yeah, what I'm doing is sin. I know that. Don't really care. What I'm doing is sin. I know that, and I'm not that concerned. That is terrifying, right, in the church. So those kinds of postures, a denial of the sinfulness of sin, or a denial of the fact that sin is wrong, both of those things certainly would constitute walking in darkness. It's a complete rejection of what God has revealed, right? Where does this come from? It comes from that judgment that was rendered in John chapter 3. 
Where do these postures come from? It comes from there. It's a desire to do what we want to do. It's a desire to do what we feel like we need to do. How many times do you hear that? It's like, I know that God says this, but I need to do this other thing. <laughs> it's how we think in our sin, and it's wrong. Our deeds are wicked. Like in our fallen state, in our fallen humanity, we do not gravitate towards righteousness, but evil, right? We have to be trained. We have to be regenerated by the Spirit of God so that we even want anything good. And so we naturally hate light. We hate truth. We would prefer to live in the darkness where we can keep doing what we want to do in comfort, at least relative comfort. That kind of a, a life, that kind of a posture would constitute walking in darkness. So hear me say this, and you're, we're going to unpack this more even as we think about what walking in the light means. The difference between a Christian and someone who is not a Christian lies at the heart level, right? It lies at the heart level. It's a difference in posture. It's a difference in posture towards God himself, the light of God. It's a difference in posture toward the light of the gospel of his son. And it's a difference in posture toward the light of God's word. A Christian and someone who is not a Christian will have a different posture at the heart level toward those things. God, the gospel, his word. And think back to the context, right? The situation of the letter. There's false teaching. There's apostasy. People all over the place are denying the reality of their sin. People all over the place are denying the sinfulness of their sin. That's not wrong. It's walking in darkness. Think about the context of the letter. There's an indifference generally about sin. Okay, yeah, I'm sinning in the body, so what? Walking in darkness, right? It's what was going on. There's an indifference. Here, this is big. There's an indifference about the things of God. An indifference about the things of God where you just don't care. I'm not saying in your worst moments, but in a general sense, if there is no concern and there's a general indifference toward the things of God, that would constitute walking in darkness. People in the context of 1 John are leaving the church. They're out, right? They went out from us. Leaving the church, in terms of leaving the church in terms of more of a universal church reality, right? Leaving the church, leaving a church where sound doctrine is preached, where the word is handled faithfully, where the sacraments are administered faithfully, leaving the church is walking in darkness. That doesn't mean you, don't, you can't go join another gospel preaching church. Of course you can. But to leave the church wholesale is a posture of walking in darkness. <clears throat> so these things that constitute walking in the darkness are what the false teachers and the apostates were doing in this context of this letter. John is writing to people who are seeing this happen all around them, and they're unsettled by that, I'm sure. And so he's calling this what it is. But now our next question. So this is like our next heading. We've considered what it means, at least in brief, not exhaustively at all, but in brief. What does it mean to walk in darkness? This question now, what does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light? Again, I'm going to try to 
restrain myself largely to comments that, that you can see here on the page in terms of the immediate context of 1 John. Of course, I'll say other things as well. First thing that we can say about what it means to walk in the light is something that it doesn't mean. So to walk in the light does not mean that we have no sin. Okay, we got to chalk the field here. To walk in the light does not mean that we have no sin. Verse 8 and verse 10 of John, 1 John chapter 1 make that very clear, right? Lest anybody be thinking, okay, well, to walk in the light, I must just live in perfect righteousness. No, that's not the point. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? So clearly we, we have sin. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. If we say we've not sinned, God's word is not in us. So it doesn't mean that we have no sin. John Calvin on verse 7, this is helpful words I trust. He's referencing the fact that Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And he says, the apostle by saying from all sin, intimates or implies that we are on many accounts guilty before God. So that doubtless there is no one who has not many vices. But he shows that no sins prevent the godly and those who fear God from obtaining his favor. That is God's favor. He also points out the manner of obtaining pardon and the cause of our cleansing. Even because Christ expiated, that is washed us, cleansed us of our sins by his blood. And the apostle affirms that all the godly are undoubtedly partakers of this cleansing. We're going to think more about that in a moment. I give you that even just to demonstrate it doesn't mean that we are sinless to walk in the light. Now we're going to talk about things that it does mean. These things are serious. First thing we could say is that to walk in the light does mean that we confess our sins. We confess our sins. And this confession, we'll continue to think about what all confession entails as we make our way through here. Verse 9 of 1 John 1 makes this clear. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So living in the light in a way that you would be pardoned from sin and have fellowship with God requires the confession of sin. Living in the light also means that we live, as I described a minute ago, we live in the light of God, we live in the light of the gospel, we live in the light of God's word. Now, we might not, on our bad days, we might struggle with that, but in a general sense, we desire God. We desire the gospel, Christ. Instead of seeing him as something threatening to me, we see him as something that is hopeful. Redeemer, Savior, Lord, Master, I love him. Though I've not seen him, I know him. Though I've not seen him, I love him. We also live in the light of God's word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? It is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Like, I love God's law. I love his word. That's the general posture of the believer, the person walking in the light. A person walking in the light, we would understand it is necessary for that individual to identify sin. Right, so this is all incorporated even in that confession piece. If we walk in the light, we will identify sin. What I mean by that is we will use God's word as a mirror. We will use God's perfect law as a mirror and we will stand in front of that and assess ourselves accurately. We will see how far short we fall and we will call that what it is. 
We will not relativize God's law so that we can sort of do it. But we'll stare it in the face and say, no, I have failed. And I have failed in all of these ways, right? We will identify sin and call it that. This is not just, oh, like the word imperfect is a great word and it can be abused, right? Human beings abuse good words. So a human being can take that word imperfect and kind of twist it and say, well, yeah, nobody's perfect, right? Well, yeah, I'm a sinner, nobody's perfect. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact like, no, God requires perfect and I'm not that. And that's a problem. That's the posture of a Christian, of a person walking in the light. Not only do we identify our sin if we're walking in the light, but we also acknowledge our sin. We call sin what it is. So we identify those areas where we have fallen short of God's law and we look at that and we say that is evil. That is wrong. That is wicked. We don't explain it away. So you'll hear me use words a lot. I just want to be really clear about things that I mean. You'll hear me use words a lot like, um, like I've even said to you before, I preach as a struggling sinner to struggling sinners. I mean that sincerely. Everyone in this room is a struggler. And that does not mean that just because we all struggle that the wrong things we do are okay, right? Sin is normal and it's not okay. Like we maintain that tension. We're all strugglers, true, and that exonerates no one. That's the reality. We own the objective truth that sin is wrong, always. We don't deny that sin is sinful when we're committing it. We don't downplay how wrong it is. We don't try to sort of dampen the blow. Another thing that would constitute walking in the light is that we are concerned about sin. We're aware of it. We're concerned about it. We're on the lookout for it. We want to get upstream of it. Another thing that would constitute walking in the light is that we are grieved when we sin. So there is a real... I'm not saying that every time you sin, you're cut to the quick like you should be. But in a general way, when you sin, you are, you are grieved and you know that you have grieved God. And that doesn't sit well with you. This is what ultimately, that conviction and that grief over sin is what should continually be driving us to Christ. We've got to take it somewhere, right? There's a real problem, though, if there's no grief. If there's no care, it's just like, yeah, I'm sinning and... I don't really, don't really care. In our bad moments, it may look that way. But it's a real concern if it looks that way wholesale. In order to walk in the light, something that would characterize a person doing that is that that individual does not want to sin. If we're walking in the light, we don't want to sin. If we're walking in the light, we are fighting and struggling against sin. So this is big, right? Like there actually is a conscious, Holy Spirit-empowered fight against wickedness for those walking in the light. We don't just happily kind of take our own side with our sin against God. We take God's side against our sin, right? There's a difference in our posture and our orientation. Whose side are we on? Am I on... My sin, that side, or am I on God's side? I want to work as the Holy Spirit works in me to fight. 
which leads us into our next little consideration. If we're walking in the light, we pursue godliness. We pursue godliness. If we're walking in the light, we pursue righteousness. We obey God's commands. We seek to. We strive to. If we're walking in the light, we strive to do good works. Now, we don't do any of that righteousness. We don't do any of that obeying. We don't do any of that good working on our own, independent from God. No way, right? We do it as God's spirit works in us. So this is a a huge thing that we have to understand biblically, that obedience and righteousness and good works are impossible apart from the spirit of God in a person. So this is why it matters that we would understand the relationship between being justified and then being sanctified, right? Conformed into the image of Christ. We are justified by what Christ has accomplished in our place, and we'll think more about that in a moment. And as we are born again by the Spirit of God, real change begins to happen. It's imperfect, right? Right now, we're not done being sanctified yet. Nobody is fully sanctified yet. And yet we have God's Spirit in such a way that real obedience is possible and happens. We have God's spirit in such a way where real good works are possible and they happen. It's a Philippians 2, 12 and 13. If you are not familiar with those verses, write them down and look at them. If you want to think about how this thing called sanctification works, how it happens, there's no two verses that succinctly summarize it better than those. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, they go this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Say that again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God and his spirit in you is what makes your desire to follow him a reality, your desire to obey a reality, your desire to do good works a reality, and it makes the obeying and the good working a reality. So at the desire level and the action level, when it comes to obedience and good works, it is God's spirit in you that is making that possible. So we never do these things independent of God, and yet we really Do them if we're walking in the light. It's like Augustine, a significant figure in the early church, said, and this is a paraphrase because you would have written this in Latin. O Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. O Lord, command what you will of me and grant by your spirit in me what you command. Right? God, you've told me to do these things, and at the same time, I can't, apart from you, work in me so that I might obey. Work in me so that I might do good works. Work in me so that I might love righteousness and hate evil. That's the desire. That's what it means, in part, to walk in the light. In addition, circling back to this confession piece, If we are walking in the light, we confess our sin. 
We own it before God and each other. So in other words, the way that this could be framed, if we're walking in the light, we're both real, as like to use language of our day, we're real, we're authentic, and we are aware. Let me explain what I mean. With God, I'm real and I'm aware. So I pray, Father, I have sinned in all of these ways. Like if I were to just sit and reflect on my day, I've sinned like this and this and this and this and this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for dishonoring you. I'm sure that I have sinned in other ways too that I'm not even aware of. Please, and then please forgive me. Have mercy on me for Jesus' sake. And then we pray, as our Lord taught us to, Father, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Keep my feet from stumbling. Give me grace so that I won't sin. Give me grace that I might live in a way that honors you. We're honest. We're real. We're aware. We confess. But we also are real and aware with each other, too. We have conversations pretty regularly about ways that we are battling sin. Like, hey, brother, I just want you to know that like, this is going on in my life. I'm having a hard time in this way. I mean, I, I know that we have conversations like that on the eldership regularly. Like, brother, know this about my life right now. Like, I'm, I'm feeling this welling up in me, and I know it's wrong. I'm fighting it. Pray for me, right? That's what we want. I'm struggling in this way. I'm seeing this welling up in myself. I know it's wrong. I know it's not okay. It's not only dishonoring to God, it's hurting me. It's hurting everybody close to me. I don't want to do this. So brother, sister, like walk with me in this. Pray for me in this. So do you see how this is an issue of the heart? Do you see how this walking in the light versus walking in the darkness begins at the heart level? In order to walk in the light, a few things, this is not an exhaustive list, but a few things would certainly need to characterize us. One would be humility, humble posture. Second would be honesty. We're honest about what's going on in here, in here. We're contrite, right? That means that we're genuinely grieved by sin. We don't want to sin. We're bothered when we do. And then finally, repentant. We would be repentant in our posture, meaning that we would turn from sin. We would call it what it is, and we would say, even though there's a part of me in my fallenness that finds that attractive, and certainly there's a part of me in my fallenness that just kind of lands me in this place where I'm ensnared. Like, I'm turning from that, and I'm fighting that, and I'm turning to God, right? There is no, this is, hear me say this, this matters. There is no remission of sins separated from this kind of repentant posture, right? There is no forgiveness of sins separated from this kind of posture because this is the posture of the believer who is casting himself or herself on the mercy of Christ. Now, the last thing that we will say about what it means to walk in the light is perhaps the most important thing. And that is that if you're walking in the light, if we 
are walking in the light. We are eager to not only confess our sin, but we are eager to confess our need for Jesus. If you're walking in the light, you are eager to confess your need for Christ. We are eager to confess Christ who came in the flesh in order to redeem us. We confess, just like John says in verse 7, put your eyes back there. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are excited to confess that reality, that it is Christ's work, not my work, right? It's Christ's doing, not my working, that has dealt with my sin and reconciled me to God. In other words, we are eager to give Christ all credit, to lean on him completely, and to stand in him alone. <clears throat> Again, I give you some John Calvin for your listening pleasure. He says this about verse 7 also. For these two things can never harmonize together, to be cleansed by the blood of Christ and to be cleansed by works. They, they can't, it can't happen. It's one or the other. We're either cleansed by Jesus, his life, his bloodshed, his resurrection, his work, his righteousness, or we're cleansed by our own works. It's one or the other. All that obedience stuff and all that good work stuff that we've considered is fruit of, it's a result of what Christ has done. It does not contribute anything to what Christ has done. We have to keep that squared away. So if we're walking in the light, we are eager to acknowledge the fact that we are great sinners and therefore we need a great Savior. We are eager to praise our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We are eager to cast ourselves on his mercy and we run as fast as we can to the grace of Christ when we sin. So you see that in this, the context of this letter with people denying the real humanity of Christ, not only does it do away with the fact that he's our redeemer, but there's a real questioning of, like, is it even appropriate or is it even good that God would go to this length to save us? For God to take on human flesh in order to accomplish redemption, like, is that even appropriate? That's being questioned by the docetic thinkers anyway. So far from downplaying Christ's humanity and everything that he went to to save us, we exalt that. We rejoice over what Jesus did in humbling himself and taking on a human nature. We herald what he has accomplished. He's truly man, praise God, as well as being truly divine. He came to fulfill righteousness for me as a man, and we herald that. He came to atone for my sin and to satisfy the wrath of God for me as a man, and we herald that. He came as a human being who really died and really got up from the dead. And we herald that. He is my redeemer because he came in the flesh, not in spite of it. And we are quick to rejoice in the fact that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. And all sin means all sin. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs once wrote, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. It's a banner that flies over our lives. There's more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. That's good news for you today. 
Christ accomplished a great deal on our behalf. And we are excited and we rejoice over the fact that now all that is left is nothing that I do, but it's something that I receive. I receive what Christ has done. I trust what Christ has done. I don't do anything. Christ came. He lived a perfect life under the law for me. The law of God that is so terrifying in its holiness, he accomplished it. And that righteousness is counted to me by faith, not by what I do. Praise the Lord, that's true. I, as a lawbreaker, should die under the law. I should pay that penalty, but Christ really did that. I died in him to the law so that I don't have to do that anymore. Praise God, that's true. We're eager to confess it. Jesus took the wrath of God that I deserve, like the sins that I've committed and the wrong that I am. He took the wrath that I deserve so that God is satisfied. And we rejoice over that reality. People who don't confess these things are not walking in the light. It's impossible. Anyone who wants to maintain that anything that we do contributes anything to what Christ has done is not walking in the light. This matters. And I know this is offensive stuff, man, like especially when you start to think about like Roman Catholic friends and other things. The official doctrine of the Roman church is darkness, right? Because there is a cooperation with God in salvation. There are things that we need to do in order to be saved, right? Not just from an evidence level, not just from a fruit level, but cooperation and contribution level. That is from hell. It's wrong. It's darkness. It's not light. Any faith that denies that Jesus is truly God and truly man is darkness. So this includes everybody from Mormons to Jehovah's Witnesses, right? It's not the real thing. So a concluding just takeaway, a thought for us in light of 1 John 1, 5 through 7. How do we want to live together, right? I trust we want to walk in the light together as a church. So the exhortation, right, the practical sort of handle takeaway is CBC, let's walk in the light. Let's guard the truth of the gospel, herald that truth of the gospel, make crystal clear how we are reconciled to God, and then live in a way that is in accord with the good news. We want to create a culture here by the Spirit, by God's grace, where two things are true, right? Where we take sin seriously and we call sin what it is, right? And we don't deny the sinfulness of sin over here. And at the same time, we're doing that in an environment where it is safe to really fight. It is safe to really struggle. Like there's compassion here, right? There's room to fight sin. Those things are not contradictory. Oftentimes when people hear this part, compassion, immediately the pushback is like, well, you just must not care about sin. Not true. I, I can get worked up about how not true that is. That is a false dichotomy. We can care about sin and take it deadly seriously and yet at the same time 
be compassionate. And create an environment in the gospel where we point one another to Christ always. Like we're always like it just becomes the thing that said, sister, trust Christ. Brother, trust Christ. Look to Jesus. He's your righteousness. Like that's the anthem and the drumbeat of the church. And then we honestly can talk about sin. We can confess it to one another, pray for each other. We can be in one another's lives over it. That's what I think we all want. And I rejoice that that's what we want. And by the Spirit of God, it's possible. We don't need to find ourselves in one of those two scenarios that I depicted earlier, where on the one hand, there's just lawlessness, or it's just kind of comfortable to sin. We don't want that. And then on the other hand, we don't want to create an environment where nobody can be authentic and where nobody can come to the church with a real battle and a real struggle. Both are possible in the gospel and only in the gospel. So CBC, let's walk in the light together and let's pray to the Lord that we might do that. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now in need of your grace as always. Even as the, the sermon is concluded, we know that your spirit's work is not done. We pray that you would accompany your word into our minds and hearts. We pray that you would drive your truth deep into us. We pray that you would continue to work in us by your spirit, that we might even more so desire the things of God, that we might love good more and hate wickedness more. We pray for our church that we would be a church that rejoices in the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished in our place. We pray that we would be a church where sin is taken seriously and where we do that with compassion. This is a supernatural thing that only you can make possible. So we pray that you would. And we pray now that as we come to the table, you would reassure all of the saints that we are in fact good with you through Christ. We pray that we would be filled with genuine grief over our sin and then also filled with genuine joy at what Christ has done. We pray both would be true in Jesus' name. Amen.